Welcome to another Growth Masters Federal podcast on growing your business in the federal sector. Your host is Shirley Collier, president and founder of Scale to Market. Scale to Market helps businesses think, plan, collaborate, and build shareholder value in the federal marketplace by developing and executing customized, data-driven business development playbooks, building efficient information systems, and creating high-performing business development teams. Have you been thinking about selling your GovCon business? Ask yourself the following questions. Could you take a month off work, confident that when you return, the business would be running along just fine? Have you had an independent accounting firm produce a set of financials recently? Is your pipeline and revenue stream made up of free and open contracts on which you are the prime? Is your 8A business based on unique products, services, and or skill sets? If you answered yes, then this podcast is for you. If not, then this podcast is definitely for you. Shirley's guest today, investment banker and M&A expert Greg Hogan, lays out in detail the issues that all business owners should be thinking about from the very day they launch their business. And now here's your host, Shirley Collier, with her guest, Greg Hogan. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, Shirley here. A few introductory comments before I bring in my guest, Greg Hogan, a director at SCNH Capital, a mid-Atlantic firm with an excellent reputation in merger and acquisition transactions among firms in the federal marketplace. People start businesses for a variety of reasons. They have an excellent idea for how to solve a problem, they want to be their own boss, or they like the authority and responsibility associated with building a company. But invariably, founders also think about and wrestle with how to exit. Will this be a lifestyle business that allows me to make a good living, or do I wish to create a business that others might be interested in acquiring, or some combination of both? Having started and sold four businesses, I understand the soul-searching that happens at some time during the life cycle of the company. So this is what we are exploring today. What is the state of the M&A market? How do you create value? How do set-asides affect market value? And what can owners do now to cash out later? And of course, the government marketplace is very different than the commercial marketplace. There is no better person to discuss these matters with than Greg Hogan. Welcome, Greg. Thank you, Shirley. It's a pleasure to be here with you today and speak with you about this very important topic for business owners. Greg, we only briefly introduced you. Please tell our audience a little more about your firm and what you do. I'm a partner at SCNH Capital, a boutique investment bank that focuses on providing M&A advisory and business valuation services to privately held middle market business owners. We generally think of the middle market as companies with enterprise values up to $250 million dollars. We've advised on over 200 M&A transactions since uh, the firm was founded in 2004, including many in the government contracting industry. Our clients are typically family and founder-owned companies, many of whom are going through their first M&A transaction and who are seeking assistance in maximizing the value of their business upon exit. Excellent. Greg, let's first discuss the current state of the M&A market for government contractor companies. The market changes, as you know. How do things look right now, especially for small businesses? Generally speaking, the M&A market here in 2019 continues to be very strong, especially for companies in the lower middle market. 
Valuations remain at or near recent high levels, albeit on a slightly lower volume of deals in comparison to some recent years. The strength of the M&A market is really being supported by both strategic and financial buyers in the government contracting sector, both of whom are seeking to put capital to work. Credit conditions remain very favorable, and low interest rates continue to drive buyers to seek accretive acquisition targets rather than having cash sit on their balance sheets. Within the government space, DOD contractors in particular are benefiting from increased levels of funding that are really driving their earnings and valuations higher. Having said that, despite the M&A frenzy here over the past several years, buyers in the government space are certainly more disciplined today in terms of the acquisition profiles that they're seeking than they were pre-sequestration. Today, buyers are really focusing in on core value drivers for the acquisition targets that they're evaluating. These include things such as their contract profiles and their capabilities that they're bringing to bear for their customers. Growth for the sake of growth is really no longer sufficient to entice buyers to make acquisitions, as it may have been uh, pre-sequestration. Buyers are really focused on identifying and finding acquisition targets that are truly value-add to their customers. Finally, grade A companies are really trading at a premium in the market today. Given the high level of M&A activity that has been going on for the past several years, there simply aren't very many high-quality small companies left. Many of these businesses, uh, in, in particular those with you know enterprise values under $50 million, have been acquired in recent years. And there's simply not a lot of really good differentiated small companies left for mid-sized contractors and large integrators to acquire. Therefore, we've really seen in the market in, in the recent year that when such companies do come to market today, they are certainly benefiting from a scarcity premium. So, Greg, explain a little bit more about what you mean when you say grade A companies. All buyers evaluate acquisition opportunities on their own sliding scales based upon their strategic objectives and the specific attributes of various acquisition targets. And so, as a result, the answer to that may not be the same for all buyers. But generally speaking, we think of grade A companies as firms that, one, have scale to actually move the needle from a size perspective for a buyer, two, have a real differentiation in the federal marketplace that creates a sustainable competitive advantage for them versus other contractors, and three, have a clear and supportable forecast of future growth and the infrastructure that goes along to support that growth. Because of these unique attributes and the high level of M&A activity in recent years, many of the companies that fit this profile have already been acquired. The law of supply and demand is alive and well in the federal contracting M&A market, and as a result, buyers today are having to pay premium prices for assets that come to market today that exhibit these traits. Greg, let's explore some of those attributes that you just mentioned. The first is scale. I'm assuming you mean that the company being acquired adds to the size and capabilities of the buyer and has a multiplier effect. Yes. In our experience, buyers generally have a higher level of interest in acquisitions that are truly transformative to their existing business in terms of either, one, the level of earnings, or two, the capabilities and customer set that uh, they have post-transaction. For example, a strategic buyer with $25 million in EBITDA 
is not likely to be very interested in a business with a million dollars of EBITDA, as the combined entity at $26 million in EBITDA isn't substantially different than what they had pre-transaction. However, if that same buyer can find an acquisition target with $10 million in EBITDA, that really materially changes the profile of the combined entity versus what the buyer was pre-transaction. And oftentimes, those two transactions take the same level of effort and time from the buyer's perspective. And so if they're going to make that investment, they really do want to seek out larger transformative candidates for acquisition. The exceptions to that rule are generally the acquisitions that offer a buyer a different set of customers or capabilities where they believe that there are revenue synergies to be realized post-transaction. So back to our example from before, that same $25 million EBITDA buyer may be interested in that $1 million EBITDA business if it gets them access to a new customer set where they believe that they can cross-sell their existing capabilities and realize additional value from the acquisition beyond just acquiring the existing earnings of the target business. Yes, and that makes a lot of sense. We're going to be talking about that a little bit later on as well. The second attribute you mentioned was sustainable competitive advantage. Can you give us an example of that? There are really three that immediately come to mind in the government contracting space. First, long-term full and open contracts with material remaining periods of performance are certainly a competitive advantage, especially if the potential buyers were bidders on those contracts and were not successful in winning that contract. For a five-year vehicle, that can mean that a buyer is effectively blocked out from providing that service to the customer for five years. That creates a significant incentive to make an acquisition. Secondly, the uniqueness of the collective technical skill sets and qualifications of the employees at a contractor, especially for services businesses, are really highly valuable in the market. The best example of this can be seen in the work done in the intelligence community. So highly skilled engineers with clearances are really hard people to find and to hire and to retain. And so companies that have an employee base with those skills and unique characteristics have a substantial competitive advantage as a result of the barriers to entry to winning work in the intelligence community. Finally, proprietary intangible assets such as software, hardware, know-how, Things that companies develop that competitors do not have uh, provide value and really differentiate their offerings in the eyes of the customer can create a very long-term advantage that a buyer can benefit from post-transaction. For example, if you've developed a proprietary software product that allows you to deliver a more cost-effective solution to the customer and your customer realizes this, you've created a barrier to entry for any other contractor to come in and compete with you for that work. That makes a lot of sense, Greg. And the third attribute that you mentioned was a forecast in future growth and the infrastructure to support that growth. My experience is that many smaller businesses are not that sophisticated in forecasting and especially in government contracting, have minimal infrastructure so they can keep their costs down. It seems that companies that do want to be acquired should invest in these processes and systems to be most attractive to buyers. Those that want to realize a premium valuation certainly should do so. Buyers are constantly evaluating the risk associated with the future earnings stream that they are acquiring. 
the more that sellers can do to alleviate the perception of risk associated with their future earnings forecast, the better off they are going to be in any M&A process. Therefore, contract wins, backlog, detailed pipeline reports, performance against prior forecasts, all can help mitigate the perception of risk of achieving any future projected growth. A developed infrastructure in terms of people, your management team, key project managers, etc., and processes, business development, capture and close, financial reporting, uh, KPIs, all can help support the story around how the company is going to actually be able to achieve that forecasted growth in the future. Greg, are you seeing companies that are being acquired cluster in certain industries or disciplines like cyber or artificial intelligence? Certainly in today's market under the Trump administration, we have seen the DOD side of the government space enjoy higher levels of funding than maybe some of the civilian agencies. So certainly there are areas of the government market and specific customers or capabilities that are currently being valued more highly by buyers. These include cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, robotics, the intelligence community, healthcare, data analytics, cloud computing, all those sorts of areas where buyers feel very comfortable that future funding streams are going to be there. Having said that, there are grade A companies across all sectors of the federal marketplace, and ultimately, M&A interest in the valuations offered by potential buyers will certainly be impacted by the type of customer within the government uh, and the perception of the, the value-add nature of the services offered by the target company. Shirley, I know that you have tech companies as clients and you focus on business development with them. What are your observations of what these firms are experiencing in the marketplace? I'm seeing a lot of interest from larger companies to find and team with small businesses that have past performance, proven past performance in artificial intelligence, machine learning, robotics, and some areas of cybersecurity. These technology areas that are still emerging complement the skills and experience that large companies have, especially those who specialize in IT. So, Greg, that begs the question, what are the key value drivers that buyers are seeking in acquisition targets? We've seen the highest valuations for companies that truly have a differentiated service or product that they are consistently delivering to their customers in a high-quality fashion. There are a lot of contractors in the market that offer high-quality service or products to their government customers. But if you can offer a high-quality service or product that no one else can, your customer relationship is far stickier than if your competition across the street can provide the same commodity-like service to the customer. This differentiation also affords the opportunity for better pricing power for companies, which really leads to my second point in terms of value drivers. Companies that have a demonstrated track record of revenue and earnings growth and exhibit higher than market EBITDA or earnings margins are going to achieve higher valuations. Consistent growth rates above market growth rates indicate that a company is gaining market share and really doing something that the customer wants more of. And higher than average earnings margins indicate that 
similarly, they're offering a higher value-add service or product than their competitors and therefore are able to demand higher pricing from the customer as a result. These characteristics often lead to my third value driver, and that is full and open contract vehicles. So a diversified portfolio of full and open prime contracts really provides buyers with a great level of clarity on the future growth opportunities for an acquisition target. Again, what buyers are really assessing when they're looking at potential acquisitions is risk-adjusted stream of the future earnings that they're acquiring. And so the better visibility they have to the future performance of the business, the more they're going to be willing to pay. As a result, there are substantial valuation differences between a company with a portfolio of full and open prime contracts versus a portfolio of subcontracts versus a portfolio of set-aside prime contracts. Full and open prime vehicles signal a closer relationship with the customer, control of open billets on that contract, and the ability of the company to win work in an open, competitively bid process. All of these significantly contribute to value in the eyes of a buyer. Finally, as I mentioned earlier, buyers are consistently assessing the risk of the future earnings stream that they're acquiring. If a company only has a year or two left on the periods of performance for their most material contracts, that's going to be substantially less valuable for a company than a company that just won a five-year contract. Visibility into that future revenue and earnings stream is key. And those all make a lot of sense, Greg. Can you give us an example of a recent transaction that had some of these value drivers? Yes. We recently closed a transaction for a government services provider in the intelligence community. Our client was providing very high-level technical product development services to various intelligence agencies with a fully cleared senior-level workforce. There really were few other companies out in the market that was able to provide the government customer with this level of technical expertise and a cleared workforce. That differentiation allowed them to command premium prices from the customer for their people. Uh, It also allowed them, as a relatively small business, to compete and win several full and open contracts versus much larger companies. They were able to create a track record of strong revenue and earnings growth on those full and open contracts due to the customer's increasing demand for their services. And ultimately, all of these factors contributed to their ability to really command a very premium valuation in the market with buyers. Well, good for them. I always love hearing about small businesses that grow up and uh, prosper. So uh, thank you for that. So, uh, Greg, I want to talk about a few other value drivers uh, that I've experienced in, in my career. In your opinion, what is the role of patents or other intellectual property in determining market value? Certainly, patents and other forms of intellectual property can be significant assets uh, in creating and sustaining this idea of differentiation that we've been touching on throughout our discussion here. Companies that can offer a unique value-add solution based on protected intellectual property should be able to win more work, command higher billing rates, and earn better margins than their undifferentiated competitors that may not enjoy the benefits of that same IP. Protecting that intellectual property is really important to ultimately receiving value from it in a transaction. Again, buyers want to be sure that 
in the acquisition targets that they're acquiring, that they have good visibility to the future earning stream of the business. Protected IP that is creating a sustainable competitive advantage will certainly contribute to that. If it isn't protected, buyers will see a higher level of risk that someone else may be able to come in uh, and develop that same technology and compete with them post-transaction. So protection of IP is also very important. And Greg, you touched on this earlier, but software, although not patentable, can be copyrighted and have significant market value, right? Absolutely. Internally developed software can be a significant value driver for a couple of reasons. Certainly, we've seen clients that have developed software that allows them internally to drive efficiencies in their own organization and in delivering services to the customer, and that can be a cost savings item. We've also seen customers that have developed software that is to be delivered to the customer that really does create a differentiated solution-based package for the customer that allows them to deepen that customer relationship beyond just providing the traditional service. Either of those can create substantial economic value for sellers. We need to take a break. My guest today is Greg Hogan, a director at SCNH Capital. Greg specializes in M&A transactions among firms in the federal marketplace. When we come back, we'll talk about the value of strong past performance in specific agencies. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Today's discussion is brought to you by Scale to Market, and your host is Shirley Collier. Utilizing the proprietary Davey Business Development Growth Framework, Scale to Market partners with business owners and executives to help them increase their company's value by achieving profitable and sustainable growth in the federal marketplace. Email Shirley at scollier at scaletomarket.com to obtain your copy of the Davey Growth Framework. Growthmasters Federal is a nationwide community of growth-oriented government contractors, their owners and executive teams, and the professionals who support them. The mission is to share experiences and discuss timely topics on planning and executing the most effective BD management practices in the complex, highly regulated, but opportunity-rich federal marketplace. And now back to our podcast on taking your GovCon business into the thriving M&A marketplace. Featuring Greg Hogan, a partner in SCNH Capital, an investment bank focused on helping owners plan their exit strategies and maximize the market value of their business. Welcome back. Greg, we've been talking about what drives value in the federal contracting market. What about small businesses that have long-term relationships and strong past performance in agencies that others are having trouble penetrating? Would buyers place a value on that? Definitely. There are just certain agencies within the government that are notoriously difficult for contractors who don't have experience uh, in working for that agency to gain access to. We've seen this story time and time again with various agencies in the intelligence community and with CMS. Buyers have often spent significant time, effort, and money in an attempt to break into an agency by hiring business development professionals, partnering with other contractors, bidding on contracts, and ultimately haven't been able to find success in any of those more traditional organic growth strategies. Ultimately, many of those buyers then turn to M&A as a way to gain access to that agency, 
uh, gain knowledge about that agency, gain a workforce that has substantial experience in working for a customer. All of these things allow them to really fast track and gain access to something that they just haven't been able to crack organically. And, you know, I've seen this in various areas of the Department of Defense and State Department as well. There are close-knit communities that have favored vendors, and it's only human nature. Everyone thinks that what they do is complicated and that only people who have done work in their agencies can possibly understand them and their mission. Let's now talk about the market value of certain types of contracts. How does set-aside revenue impact the market value of a company? The biggest impact is that it usually significantly limits the pool of interested buyers. The reality is that many of the larger companies that are the traditional acquirers in the federal contracting marketplace and they can really afford to make acquisitions, oftentimes can't perform on set-aside contracts, small business contracts, 8A contracts, etc., or wouldn't be eligible to bid on the recompete of that contract when the period of performance uh, was over. On the other hand, the smaller companies in the market, those that may be able to perform on those contracts and be eligible for the recompete post-transaction, those companies usually can't afford to do the acquisition. And so it really leaves sellers in a more difficult position in terms of developing a viable buyer pool for the business. As a result of this more limited buyer pool and the higher risk profile of retaining that work post-transaction, there may not be any viable buyers for certain set-aside deals. Those set-aside deals that do occur certainly occur most normally at a discount to what we would consider to be market valuations and also usually have significantly more structure to the deal than a traditional government services deal may have. And by structure, I mean earnouts are very common in these transactions, and these earnouts are usually associated with retaining certain set aside contracts post transaction or the seller's ability to transition that work to a full and open vehicle. Both of those are tools that are used by buyers to really protect themselves in these types of acquisitions. As a result of these restrictions on set aside work, in many cases, subcontract work is actually more valuable than prime set-aside contracts because it's really far easier to transfer that work to a potential buyer. The contracts are usually much less restrictive with respect to the ability to transfer that work in a change in control transaction. And so the real takeaway, I think, for small business owners is that they really need to develop and have a viable transition strategy away from set-aside contracts in order to create market value in the long run. That's very interesting, Greg. Can you give us some of the traits of a company with set-aside contracts that was successful in being acquired? A few thoughts come to mind. Uh, I think the small businesses that end up being successful from an M&A perspective are those that really view set-aside work as a stepping stone in their overall growth and life cycle as a company. Small business contracts can be hugely valuable to owners in not only creating earnings and cash flow that you know can be distributed or, or reinvested into the business, but also by providing past performance qualifications that can be leveraged in future proposals to win work going forward. 
you know, I think companies really need to be careful about falling into the trap of relying on set-aside contracts as they continue to grow, uh, and especially as they begin to think about how to position the company for exit. Those that are successful in positioning for exit are those that really demonstrate an ability to leverage their past performance from set-aside vehicles to win full and open work. And as a result, begin to see a transition in the company's revenue base from being predominantly set-aside driven to predominantly full and open. Successful companies also take the time to develop a clear transition plan for the remaining set-aside work either by identifying new full and open vehicles under which they might be able to deliver those same services to the customer, or by finding new set-aside partners that would allow them to flip over and maintain a subcontractor position for a portion of the work when their contracts expire. I want to elaborate on that just a bit, Greg, because you were right. Companies can compete for full and open contracts as a small business or as they are preparing to exit the small business program to find other smaller companies that can compete for their set-aside contracts, and they can then become a subcontractor on the work they have been doing. So it flips. The prime becomes the sub. The sub becomes the prime. And another alternative is to form a joint venture with a smaller company with complementary skills. And under the mentor-protege program, they can perform up to 60% of that work. But in any case, Greg, I would imagine that the value to the buyer is what's in it for me. That is absolutely correct. Whatever the arrangement is, the buyer is going to view it through the lens of what happens to this arrangement after I buy the company. From an M&A standpoint, we've seen in the market that flipping to a subcontractor position is usually a little bit cleaner as it doesn't involve the creation of a legal entity. Although in either case, the legal and contractual details of the arrangement, whether it be a prime sub arrangement or whether it be a joint venture arrangement, will drive what value is there or not there for a buyer post-transaction. So what should shareholders do to prepare their companies for sale? Due diligence from an M&A perspective is a painful process, even for the most organized of companies. And so we often tell our clients in advance of going to market that this process will be like having a second job for a period of time. And so our advice is to do as much of the preparation prior to going to market in order to get the house in order and be able to get through that process as quickly as possible. Going through an M&A transaction is stressful for business owners, many of whom have have founded and owned and run their companies for a long period of time. And going through that due diligence process is going to add to levels of stress. And so whatever you can do in advance of actually being in market and talking to buyers to get ready uh, is going to behoove you during that process. We focus on a couple of different major areas. First is really making sure that your financial house is in order. This could mean getting externally prepared financial statements for the first time, cleaning up the balance sheet, so looking at accounts receivable, collection issues, making sure your debt instruments are in order, uh, cleaning up any shareholder receivable issues, things that a buyer will require you to do as a result of the process. The more of that you can do in advance of going to market, the better off you're going to be. The second would be to really develop 
certain financial reporting tools, if you haven't already done so, that track contract waterfalls and backlog and pipeline and a truly developed and supported income statement projection. All of these things are going to be a part of the due diligence process that any buyer does. And so the more that you can make these financial reporting tools a routine part of running your business pre-transaction, the better off you're going to be. Similarly, there are things on the legal side that you need to make sure are in order. So, um, you know, key employment agreements with, with key management teams, making sure you have all of your contracts executed and in a fashion that's easy to provide to buyers. Oftentimes in government contracting companies, we see a lot of shareholder agreements that may not be fully documented. So making sure that any promises that you've made to management team members or or key employees is documented, cleaning up any ongoing litigation or contract disputes, all of these things will be looked at by a buyer, and many of them will need to be addressed in connection with the transaction. So the more of that you can do before you're in the market, the better off you will be. Longer term, in advance of transactions, one of the things that we try and drill into our clients is that the more that they can make themselves redundant and unnecessary, the better off that they're going to be when it comes time for the transaction, both in terms of the valuation and their personal options post-transaction. So really developing and supplementing your existing management team and and trying to make yourself as the owner unnecessary to the operation will pay off in spades in a transaction process. And lastly, timing is important and, and really timing related to contract vehicles. So if you have certain key contract wins that are really transformative or material to your business, those key contract wins are going to be most valuable to the moment after you win them or the contract begins when you have the longest period of performance remaining. And so giving some thought in advance to what your contract uh, recompete cycle looks like and really planning out from a timeline perspective when might be the most advantageous time to go to market is a good exercise to start thinking about. I would agree, Greg. That's really good advice. And I advise companies to start thinking about and planning for exit at least three years before their self-imposed deadline. And I touch on many of those topics. Why would someone want to buy your company? What can you do now to increase your future market value? And I emphasize a business development discipline that focuses on profitable long-term contracts and hard-to-reach agencies making yourself indispensable to your client, and having a robust pipeline that has significant P-wins, meaning a 40% probability or higher of winning those contracts. I also help founders bottle up what they know and feed it to others and to empower an executive team, which supports your advice of making yourself unnecessary. That helps the buyer, but it also helps the seller. When I sold my last business, I agreed to a three-month transition period, which was ample. I was ready to move on, and the buyer wanted to start doing things their own way, of course. Greg, as we wrap up our discussion, what final advice would you give our listening audience? Uh, Quite simply, the earlier you start planning for an exit, the better off you will be. We often tell owners that, ideally, they should start planning for the exit the day they start the business. 
<laughs> That's good advice as well. Greg, thank you so much for your insights and wisdom on this important topic. Business owners put in 60-hour work weeks for many years, hoping to one day cash out, and you've given them some thoughts to ponder. Thank you, Shirley. It was my pleasure. Folks, if you want to get in touch with Greg, he can be reached at ghogan at schgroup.com or reach out to us here at Skelta Market and we'll make sure you're connected. This is Shirley Collier, president of Skelta Market and host of the Growth Masters Federal Podcast, signing off for now. Thank you for joining us today. For more information on how to instill enduring BD management principles into your business, visit our website at scaletomarket.com. That's scale2market.com. And subscribe to the Growth Masters Federal channel wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our webinar series on the Scale to Market website and join us again soon for another informative Growth Masters Federal presentation.